are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Psalm 33, then we'll flip to Colossians 1 in the New Testament. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts them deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All right, thank you both for reading this morning. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our guest preacher this morning. He's Pastor Bruce Powers. He's a licensed minister in the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. Bruce, since 2013, has served as the associate pastor at Now Then Alliance Church. So Bruce has become a friend and brother. We serve together as officers on the Elk River Ministerial Association, where Bruce keeps the books What a joy to welcome Bruce here to the pulpit and to open God's Word with us. So if you would please welcome him with some applause. It is good to be here worshiping with you today. This was like coming home. There are so many people that I know from the past. From when I first walk up to the door... A fellow with the shirt on named Maximus opens the door for me. There has been person after person shaking my hand and introducing themselves to me. One of the tests of a church is hospitality. As a person being here for the first time, you excel at hospitality. And that is a good sign. I thank you for that. When I turned 60, and unfortunately that's been a few years ago now, I got two cards, one card from the families of each of my two sons. I opened the first card, and you won't be able to see it. I will show it to you, and I'll read just the verses. It's some quick, short verses. said, Grandpa, you always remember what it's like to be a kid. You always have time to spend with me. You always make me feel important. And you're always fun to be with. Because of those always, I will always love you. Happy birthday, Addie, Claire, and Calvin. After thanking my first son for that card, it was a very touching card. I opened up the second card for my son Ben and his three sons, and it was the exact same card. (laughs) Getting that card from both of them made that so meaningful to me. And today we're going to be looking at three short passages from Scripture. And it is my hope that you'll find those as meaningful to you as I did these two cards with the same verses for me. 
Most scholars attribute Psalm 33 to King David. Though from reading it, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is clearly evident. And its message to praise to God comes forth clearly. Like Psalms 1, 2, and 10, Psalms 33 is one of the few that does not include a title. It's not a long psalm, and I encourage you to read all 22 verses, but not while I'm talking. I will begin reading at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of the mouth. This verse mirrors the creation story of Genesis 1. Yahweh spoke, and the heavens came into being. I was a science major when I was in the world of schools, and we science majors like to refer to this as the Big Bang. As a student of God's Word, though, we like to refer to this creation story as creation ex nihilo, which means creation out of nothing. God spoke, and the universe was created out of nothing. Can you imagine anything that better illustrates the concept that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, that God is omnipotent, all of which means powerful. At this point, I would like to open with a word of prayer. God, I pray more than anything this morning that the Holy Spirit would guide my words as I preach this morning, and more importantly, that you would guide the hearts and minds of each person here so they would understand fully the truth of these passages. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 7. He gathers the waters out of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. The NIV translates that Hebrew word as jars, But other translations translate this word as heap. Both are accurate. I have no beef with the NIV. In fact, it's the translation I use most. The idea, though, is that Yahweh separated the water from the land, again paralleling the Genesis narrative. But I do want to come back to that word heap. The same word is used in Exodus 15 and verse 8, to refer to God splitting the Red Sea. The Hebrew reader would make this connection between this psalm and the story from Exodus. Not only does God have the power to create time, space, and matter out of nothing, but he also has the power to organize matter and split the Red Sea into heaps. He is powerful. He is omnipotent. Verses 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all of the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. How are we to react to a sovereign, all-powerful God with reverence and with complete respect? All of the earth will fear the Lord one day. All of those on earth who do not know God, will fear and rever him. 
verses 10 and 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. God is sovereign over space, time, and matter. But God is also sovereign over the nations and their governing authorities. King Nebuchadnezzar learned this the hard way. God used King Nebuchadnezzar to discipline Israel. In fact, the Babylonian army of King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed much of Israel and took most of the Hebrews back to Babylon as slaves. But according to Daniel chapter 4, God caused his downfall. Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years living like a wild animal and eating grass. One of the themes that we take away from the Old Testament is that God is always in control. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century evangelist, writes this concerning the sovereignty of God. Quote, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. God, I wish I could speak like Charles Spurgeon. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to be more earnestly content than to know the doctrine that their master is sovereign over all creation. We're going to turn now to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And while you're turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, I want to give you a bit of background on the town of Colossia. Colossia was the town in Asia Minor, which today we know as of Turkey. It is about five miles south of Laodicea. Colossia happened to be built on the Lycos River, which provided the community with an abundance of cold, refreshing water. In fact, the Romans built an aqueduct between Colossia and Laodicea to supply the latter with water. According to the Roman historian Tactus, both communities were damaged by an earthquake in 60 AD, but they both recovered using their own resources. We know that Philemon and Epaphras lived in Colossia and served its congregation and the church there. But the church in Colossia had a problem. Some were teaching that Jesus wasn't God, really. Rather, they claimed Jesus was merely one in a string of angels that God just sent to minister. There were other issues as well, and you can read about those in Colossians chapter 2. And I would encourage you to do that as well. But for the purposes today, Paul is responding to the truth that Jesus is God. The letters to the Colossians, as well as the letters to Philemon, are believed to have been written by Paul from his prison cell in Rome about 60 AD. At that time, Emperor Nero was the cruel and insane emperor of the Roman Empire who could afford 
to dishonor Paul's Roman citizenship. It's pretty easy to ignore Paul when he sat in prison and you're the emperor. However, while in prison, Paul was visited by Epaphras, who happens to be from Colossia. From Epaphras, Paul learned that the Colossian Christians, who had at one time been strong in their faith, were now vulnerable to a set of deceptions. So Paul wrote to the congregation in Colossia. The letter was also intended to go to the church in Laodicea to refute each of the theological errors that Colossians were tempted to embrace. Those letters, however, take readers far beyond the issues of deception. Paul cared deeply that all of his readers, both 2,000 years ago and today, understood the context of their lives within God's story. Paul begins with a greeting, so I'm going to pick up Paul's narrative at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. As I already noted, the heretics viewed Jesus as one among a series of lesser angels descending from God. Paul refutes that with two powerful descriptions of who Jesus really is. First, Paul describes him as the image of the invisible God. Econ is the Greek word that he translates as image. From econ, we get our modern English word icon, which often means statue. That same word is used in Matthew 22 as the example of Caesar's portrait on a coin and in Revelation chapter 13 to refer to the statue of the Antichrist. Although man is also the econ of God from Genesis chapter 1, man is not the perfect image of God. Our image was tarnished by sin during the fall. Our image has been degraded It has been degraded physically, meaning we die. Mentally, we are morally corrupt. And spiritually, we are separated from God. But unlike man, Jesus is the perfect image of God, the perfect econ. Jesus reflects God's attributes fully. Christ is the exact representation of God's nature in its fullness. From Philippians 2 and verse 6, we know that Jesus is the very form of God. That is why Jesus could say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That comes from John 14. In Christ, the invisible God became visible, and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father. By using the term econ, Paul emphasizes that Jesus is both the representation and the manifestation of God. He is the final and complete revelation of God because he is God in human form. To think anything less of Jesus is utterly wrong. Paul continues by describing Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. From the Arians and Gnostics of the early church, To the Jehovah's Witnesses of our day, those who would deny our Lord's deity have sought support from this phrase. They argue that it speaks of Christ as a created being and therefore not 
the eternal God. Such an interpretation, however, completely misunderstands the sense of the word prototokos, which is translated as firstborn. Prototokos refers primarily to position or rank. The best illustration of this word might be found in the rite of inheritance. It was common practice in the Middle East that upon the death of his parents, the firstborn son would inherit the vast wealth of the family. Now there is more to this rite of inheritance, but we don't have to delve into it fully and we don't need to. The point is that Paul's readers would have understood the word prototokos right away. At the same time, Paul's readers would have also understood, and we need to understand, that prototokos is not necessarily chronological. It is somewhat like a word that is in common use today, prototype. A prototype is not necessarily the first created item, but is an example of the ideal creation. Let me explain using an illustration from Genesis chapter 25. Esau and Jacob were two sons born to Isaac and Rebekah. In fact, they were twins. Esau was a manly man. He was a skilled hunter, and he happened to be the favorite of his father Isaac. Jacob, on the other hand, was a quiet homeboy. He liked to cook. He was the favorite son of his mom, Rebekah. While they were twins, Esau was born just before Jacob and was therefore entitled to the right of inheritance. But as we continue to read in chapter 25, it was Jacob who received the prototokos of inheritance. In Psalms 89, God explains the usage of prototokos in terms of the Messiah, that is, in terms of Jesus. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn prototokos, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. In Revelation 1 and verse 5, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of the dead, even though he was not the first person to die, nor the first person to be resurrected chronologically. Then finally in Romans chapter 8, Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In each case, prototokos refers to the highest in rank, not in chronological order. First and foremost, Paul wants the Colossians, as well as us, to reject the idea that Jesus was a created being. This is a heresy held by many today outside of Christianity. The truth is that Jesus existed before creation and is exalted in rank above all of creation. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. Jesus existed before the creation of time, matter, and space. Let's turn to verse 16. Paul provides evidence for Jesus' supremacy over creation in verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things that have been created through him and for him. First, he is the creator. The false teachers at Colossae viewed Jesus as a created being. But Paul rejects this error 
insisting that by him all things were created. This truth is affirmed by John in John chapter 1, where it is written, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Paul clarifies that Jesus made all things, both in the heavens and on the earth, the visible as well as the invisible. Jesus is God, and he created the physical and material universe, but he also created the powers and authorities in the creation. By studying the creation, one can gain a glimpse of the power of this omnipotent God. The sheer size of the universe is staggering. The number of the stars exceeds the number of grains of the sand on our entire planet. I could go on and on about the science. I enjoy the science of the creation story, but I need to not digress. I need to return back to verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, where the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Far from being an angel, Jesus created the angels. Scripture is clear that Jesus is not an angel, but the creator of the angels. He is above the angels, who in fact worship him and are under his authority. Jesus' relation to the unseen world, like his relation to the invisible universe, proves that he is God. Moreover, God is sovereign over rulers and nations and all governing authorities. Not only does God control time, space, and matter, but he is sovereign over every nation, including our own country, and every governmental authority on the earth. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. God is the great king. He is the source of all power and authority. He is the ultimate control of all things great and small. He is in control of the nations and of all of human history. He has a plan for the ages, and he is working out his plan by his own will and his own power, and nothing is going to stop it. Jesus also holds together or sustains our creation. As the great king, Jesus knows what is going on in our lives. As the great shepherd, he holds us all together. I have a question for us. Since God is truly sovereign over everything, including calamity and natural disasters and even death, is his sovereign control restricted to those types of things that we regard as good, such as blessings and family and our personal salvation? Or worded another way, does God's sovereign nature extend to evil? It is important to distinguish between natural events, such things as tornadoes and earthquakes and famines and disease and all of those types of things. Is God sovereign over the natural events that we call evil? Does he exert absolute control over the events and nature such that he could, if he willed to do so, prevent them from happening or redirect their course to minimize the extent of damage they incur? That is unequivocally yes. We see abundant examples of such miracles in the Gospels. Jesus healed the blind man. Jesus calmed the storm. 
Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Clearly, Jesus is sovereign over nature, even sovereign over life and death. But what about moral evil? Moral evil has reference to the decisions made by human beings. God created humans in the image of God, and a component of this image is free will. This is the ability to freely choose, even to choose evil over good. Does God have sovereignty over the free will of man? Can God stir the heart of the unbeliever to do his will? Can he frustrate the will of a person whose determination is to do evil and thereby prevent evil from happening? Is God sovereign over the choices of humans, including suffering resulting from those choices? When we observe the evil in our world today, we must pause before we answer that question. We must think. First, Scripture indicates that God is sovereign over the choices of humans and the evil that they do. To illustrate this, we can consider a couple of biblical cases, starting with the case of Israel and their exodus from Egypt, as recorded in Exodus chapter 7. The Pharaoh of Egypt was a very powerful human leader. After defeating Israel in battle, Pharaoh took the Hebrew people back to Egypt as slaves. The classic film, The Ten Commandments, is based upon this story. God called Moses to free the Hebrew people. Freeing the slaves was God's will and God's purpose. Oddly, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, and this is prior to their leaving, Moses records that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God was in complete control of that situation, including the mind and will of Pharaoh. We've also noted earlier on that God was sovereign over King Nebuchadnezzar as well. Consider the human author of Colossians in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Prior to his conversion, Paul's job was to arrest and punish Christians. God blinded him on his way to Damascus to round up and punish the followers of Jesus. So the short answer is yes, God is sovereign over moral evil and has the power and authority to destroy evil. However, that answer would be woefully incomplete if I ended my message at this point. God's design for humans included free will, and this includes the freedom to choose evil. For a time, God allows evil. God allows wars. God allows suffering. For a time, God allows the stench of moral rot to infest his creation. But even this is a component of his ultimate plan. So what are we to do with this information that I have mentioned today? Why should we take the time to understand the sovereign nature of God? What would be the purpose in my message today? For if I've stood up here for 15 minutes and you take away nothing, my words were in vain. So that is a fair question. I would offer you three points. And I will conclude with these three points. Even though Scripture teaches that God is in control of everything, we should not think of his sovereignty as an impersonal, mechanical determinism. 
God's sovereign lordship is deeply personal. He is without equal. He is the King of King and the Lord of Lords, without limitations in any way. He is outside the boundaries of time. He is infinite. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is the ruler of everything. When I think of sovereignty, the phrase I like best is God is in control. And that is such a comfort. When a loved one lies in a hospital bed, God is in control. When we think of the most difficult times that we've ever had with a child, God is in control. When a close friend is in the ICU, God is in control. When the economy goes south, even the economy in our own country, God is in control. God holds everything together, people. Or as the inspired Paul wrote, in him all things hold together. God's sovereignty means that there isn't anything that will enter your life that God does not either decree or allow. Anything that happens to us is either decreed or allowed by God. And nothing will enter your life that if you are willing to trust in Him, He cannot work out for your own good. While we cannot always understand that, and I struggle with that at times myself, it is a truth from Scripture. In light of this, how do you typically respond when things are out of your control? When stuff doesn't happen the way you would like, but there's nothing you can do about it. When you're in a jam and you need to ask God for something in prayer, but you are unaware of whom you are talking to or if he's even listening. That one that hears your prayers has power over the entire universe, over every single atom and every single bird, even the feathers on a sparrow. And yet, this infinite being loves us and cares about you. That is who you are talking to when you pray. My second point, that is why we worship him, and that is why we praise him. That's why we've spent Sunday morning worshiping and praising God, because he is all-powerful and he is in control. Humans are able to make genuine choices, and those choices have real consequences. God does not directly cause everything that happens, especially the bad, yet he does allow what happens to happen. And ultimately, God's will is going to be accomplished. That is a certainty. At first blush, these statements may seem unimportant to one's daily life and better suited for an esoteric theological discussion. However, the sovereignty of God is quite practical and has a significant impact on our daily lives. For this, we worship and praise God. Perhaps most importantly, we need to remember point three. God desires children. God desires family. God desires sons and daughters. He does not desire slaves. He does not desire robots. He's already created slaves, and he did not want robots. Please join me in a word of closing prayer. God, as I prayed at the beginning of this message, may your Holy Spirit guide our hearts and minds 
as we consider these passages. May we always remember first and foremost that you are in control over everything. You are sovereign. And while you created us with free will, and sometimes it seems to ourselves that this free will gets in the way, and we might even wish we didn't have it, that is your plan. And your plan is what's going to happen. And for that, we worship and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.